Plus, we always had a variety of animals because of my brother. Yes. I can yeah. remember when I was about eight years old, he asked me, do you have any of your allowance saved? And I said, yeah, a little bit, you know. He says, well, I want a new pet. He said, an opossum. And so he had an opossum shipped all the way out from North Carolina, <laughs> I think it was, by train. I was part owner in it, and <laughs> we made a few mistakes. Opossums never make a good pet, I can guarantee you. <laughs> we had a porcupine for a pet. Oh, my goodness. A porcupine was a better pet than a possum. Hey Islanders and welcome to episode 196 of the Commando Voice. Today I speak with an environmental specialist and the president of the Friends of Camano Island Parks organization. Please welcome Tom Eisenberg. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson and you're listening to the Camano Voice podcast where I interview local business owners, comedians, singers, and more. I dive into their backstory to find out how they got where they are what are some of the tips for you to do the same and find out where they're going? Tune in every week as I interview more of the people you see every day. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. Hope you guys are having a good week. Um, yeah, weekend was kind of a weird weekend. Thought it was going to be a lot more productive, and it just wasn't. <laughs> but I guess that's fine. Um, still in the soccer season, so we had two games on, on Saturday and uh, with the kiddos and, you know, all, all the different things going on this type of year. So, uh, But things are going well uh, here at the Commons. We're getting prepped. Uh, mark your calendars for November. Um, I should know this off the top of my head, but I don't. November 3rd. Uh, that's a Friday, November 3rd. Friday, November 3rd. From 5 to 7, we are doing the Taste of the Marketplace uh, that is when we open the doors and you are able to try out a bunch of different things that we have uh, available over the Christmas season. Um, so different, uh, some of our bakery stuff, um, some of the soups and mixes and dips that we carry. Um, you know, we've got Bit of Taste. Uh, Debbie, the owner of Bit of Taste, she'll be there with tasting her olive oils and vinegars um, and telling you how to pair them better and, and what other weird ways to, to use them. Um, she always brings something new and exciting. So um, last year, I think it was, that she brought the, the crispy hot olive or crispy hot oil, which I had never had before, and that became one of my favorite new items. Um, so always something new there. We got live music. We got Lydia from The Loft doing a live painting during it. So just always a good time. Uh, this year, we're doing a little bit different. We have tickets for sale. They are $5 a piece. Um, and those are just going to go straight donation to the food bank. Um, we're just trying to get a head count so we know how many people are coming. But uh, but come, hang out. Uh, and that way you also get to try out the uh, uh, different food and support the food bank. So it's a win-win-win, you know? Um, so, yeah, be sure to come out for that. Um, but into this episode. So I got to interview Tom Eisenberg. Um, and for those of you who don't know, he's the president of the Friends of Camano Island Parks Organization. Uh, you may see them around. Uh, they are sometimes referred to as FOSIP, which I don't think they like that or not, but uh, it's the one that we've given them. So, um, you know, that happens in this area where people get, uh, you know, businesses or organizations get nicknames and they're like, that's not my nickname. Well, it is now. Um, so anyways, uh, but Tom, who has been the president of FOSIP or friends of the Friends of Camano Island Parks Organization, um, 
is has been involved in that organization for a really long time. Uh, done a ton of work within the parks, uh, and uh, they really help out um, because the you know the the funding for parks and stuff like that is low. And um, so we really need these other organizations to be able to help out and help supply things and get volunteers together uh, because there's not enough paid positions uh, to cover all of the different things that happen for park maintenance and park protection and new policies and new ideas to, to keep the park safe, uh, well manic uh, manicured, is that the word? Yeah, uh, and taken care of. So huge thank you to Tom for all the work and time that he's put into uh, FOSIP as well as this community. So uh, super excited to have him on the podcast, uh, hear his history, hear how he got started in parks and environmental stuff in general. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Tom Eisenberg. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice. Today I'm here with an environmental specialist as well as the president of the Friends of Camino Island Parks Organization. Welcome to the podcast, Tom Eisenberg. Hi, thanks, Brandon. Yeah, so before we get started, tell us a little bit about Tom. Well, after, uh, you don't have the time. <laughs> after 85 years on this uh, earth, uh, you know, I just uh, have had a real good time. That's all I can tell you. I'd rather be lucky than good, and so far my life has uh, seen me through. Nice. Very cool. So where did you grow, grow up? I grew up in Everett, Washington. And, okay. Uh, you know, I've been a, a Northwest person all of my life. I've uh, traveled uh, here, there, and around the world, and I always come back home. I like it here. Yeah. What was it like growing up in Everett back then for you? Oh, Everett was still pretty rural, especially where we were. We were south of town, and uh, it was actually just a wonderful place to grow up. Uh, uh, we didn't have the traffic that we have now, so mm -hmm. kids could be kids, uh, played uh, <laughs> street hockey, and uh, <laughs> we had a beautiful uh, wooded area, not more than, uh, not even a half a mile or a quarter mile away from our house, with okay. a, a stream, and so uh, parents were uh, willing to let kids go do that sort of stuff, you know, and so it was, uh, it was always a lot of fun, a lot of adventures, let's put it that way. Yeah. Nice. So then, um, when you were growing up, was uh, environmental things and that, was that on your mind, or were you just kind of living life? Well, when you're a kid, you're just out to have fun and try new things. Mm -hmm. I uh, had an older brother, he was four years older than I was, and, uh, you know, some people start out life even as a child knowing exactly what they want to do. Mm -hmm. My brother was that type of person. He wanted to be a veterinarian. Okay. And... Uh, so four years older, uh, he was so interested in uh, animals and, uh, and nature, uh, you know, when we'd go for a hike, which he was forced to take me on, of course, four years younger, <laughs> but still, it was always an educational trip because he knew what he was looking at, and as a result, I learned too. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So did you guys just hike around that area, or were you going up and down the North Cascade and stuff once with parents and stuff? No, I tell you, it... Uh, in those days, uh, families, if they did anything, they did something on a vacation. Okay. Uh, it just wasn't quite so mobile a society as it is today. Mm -hmm. But we had everything we needed right where we were at. And, of course, as you get older, uh, you start becoming more adventurous. And we extended our hiking trips to uh, across uh, to Pigeon Creek and Forest Park uh, and... Uh, 
we found out that uh, when you do that, you should always tell your mom and dad because we ended <laughs> up being gone for like 12 hours and uh, wow. they were about ready to send out a search party, but it didn't stop us from doing it again. It was uh, really a, a cool adventure. So. Nice. Yeah. So then did you go to, were you homeschooled or did you go to high school down in Everett? Homeschool wasn't a big thing. It was a necessity for some areas, but no, we went to public school and uh, we attended one of the oldest uh public schools in Everett, Lowell School. Okay. Uh, just uh, a small community right on the Snohomish River. It was uh, it preceded Everett. It was an older community, uh, but it didn't have the deep water seaport. So Everett, uh, when it started, uh, really uh, became the populous center. Okay. So the schoolhouse was uh, wood framed with a brick foundation and uh, turrets on all four corners with spires that went up. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. It looked like something out of, uh, uh, you know, uh, a movie of uh, old times. You know? Yeah. It was really something. And uh, the third floor was already condemned when we were kids, but we uh, <laughs> continued to go through school. It was a blessing. When I-5 went through, it went right through the school. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So the year after I left, Best story of my life. I lose, leave something that usually ends up uh, disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> well, please don't leave Kameno then. <laughs> no, I'm going to stay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, as you were going through high school, then, <clears throat> um, as you were exiting high school, what was kind of your interest? What was your, your goals or plans for, for your next step? Well, I didn't have any plans. <clears throat> In fact, my brother was a man with purpose. So it was already pre-planned for him. He was going to go to college. He was going to study zoology or veterinary. And uh, he did exactly that. Four years behind him, even the teachers I had had taught him. They expected me to be the same type of student. No. <laughs> but at any rate, to appease my parents, I did go to college. And I just was not a good fit. Uh, the lifestyle, everything about it, uh, I liked real-world experiences, and so I went uh, one year to the University of Washington, actually about a year and a half, and then I finished out an associate's degree at uh, Everett Community College. Okay. Yeah. Nice. What did you end up studying then? Uh, I started out in fisheries okay. because uh, I love fishing, and uh, uh, when I started the, my second semester at the University of Washington, my uh, uh, counselor had me lined up to take uh, government and poly science. Okay. <laughs> I asked him, I said, why would I, in the world, would I want to do it? He said, well, he said, if you want a career in fisheries, you have to be able to work with uh, public officials uh, and politics because there's a lot of politics involved. Right. Kind of shut my switch off right there. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to work with fish, so uh, <laughs> that dream was popped. Okay. So then what did you do? Uh, you said you finished with an associate's degree. Yes. Um, what did you do after that? After that, I decided to uh, do what I wanted to do, and that was get on with living. So uh, I got a job, and uh, in the summers I had been working in sawmills to put myself through school. And believe it or not, uh, in those days, uh, three months' work in a mill would uh, pretty much pay your tuition. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I know it. So it's, That's it, crazy. Yeah, no student loans, uh, nothing like that. And so uh, the last job I'd had before I w went for my uh, associate's degree 
was a very well-paying job. It's what was called the Shingle Weavers Union. Okay. <laughs> that sounds crazy, doesn't it? <laughs> but uh, weaving shingles that's was the packing of the shingles so that you could make a bundle out of them. Okay. And it paid, uh, you worked six hours, and anything over six hours was overtime, and you always worked overtime. Okay. And so uh, I felt very cocky and very, very well-to-do. And I told my dad I wasn't going to go back to school. I was going to continue working. And he says, uh, well, i tell you what, son. He says, I've worked for 40 years in the sawmills. He said, I know a lot of people. And he said, if you decide to do that, I'm going to have you blackballed so you'll never get a job. <laughs> so at any rate, I didn't. I went to work for a uh, petroleum depot in uh, Mukilteo. It was a military installation. And okay. I like that. Nice. So what did you do there then? Uh, just uh, start out uh, doing uh, everything from loading trucks with uh, jet fuel. We were handling JP-4. It was all military uh, fuels. Mm-hmm. And uh, 115, 145 octane high test uh, aviation fuels. And so, uh, you know, it went from... Uh, the simpler things like loading trucks and loading tank cars to gauging tanks and uh, taking samples. And uh, I didn't realize what a big help that was going to be to me later on because uh, I was able to take a very well-paying job at a non-government refinery. And uh, that's where I spent most of my career then was okay. yeah, in the petroleum business. Okay. And that's how I got into the environmental end of it, too. Yeah. How did that all connect together? <laughs> Well, in, uh, I started uh, working for Standard Oil of California, and they changed their name uh, shortly to Chevron U- USA, but uh, that was the name of the company when I started, a little depot down in Edmonds, Washington. And uh, the environmental laws hadn't really kicked into effect. People were starting to become more and more aware that we have to take care of our environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result... Uh, I knew all about fishing. I knew all about the water, uh, boats. I became involved as a volunteer in their spill response group. Okay. And uh, as more pressure was put on uh, the petroleum industry to be more proactive, uh, it was just natural they started putting it upon me to uh, figure out a a booming system for the docks and things like that. And uh, we realized that the boat we had was inadequate, and so... Uh, you know, it's a lot of fun for me. I got to go down and help design a boat at uh, <laughs> uh, Work Boats Northwest in Seattle. And wow. And anyway, just by happens chance, I ended up uh, being their environmental person as well as uh, doing my regular work. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So how was that? Um, it seems like a really pertinent time for the petroleum industry because that was that issue has been obviously a big forefront of mind of um, yeah. when it comes to keeping green and stuff like stuff like that. Um, for you, what were the things that you were seeing that they they changed from doing something to doing in a better way? Almost every process, uh, we started uh, examining it and finding out what we could do better. Uh, you know all. From the get-go, the petroleum was expensive, and they didn't want spills even in those days. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, uh, they would handle out-of-date products very carelessly. Uh, The way they dumped them and got rid of them uh, didn't make much sense, and so that was easy to adjust to. And then uh, we already had containment walls and things like that around the uh, 
tanks, but we started getting in the habit of uh, closing the scuppers when it wasn't raining, so even if there was an accidental leak. Uh, the other thing that I noticed when I started to get in charge was that nobody wanted to report a spill. Hmm. And I thought, well, this is crazy. And I thought, I know why they don't want to, because it's such a small spill, you know, but then that leads you to be complacent. And so when I had a little more authority, uh, I made out the spill response list, and I insisted that everybody on the dock was to call that at least uh, once a week. Yep. Make sure all the telephone numbers were still current and working. I also told them the rule was that if you had a spill and it made a sheen on the water, you had to report it. Okay. So even if you laid your dirty gloves down <laughs> on a mud puddle, yeah. believe it or not, there's going to be a small sheen. Okay. So I told him, I said, listen, I want you guys to start reporting anything that's going to qualify. It doesn't have to be your dirty gloves, but if anything spills, report it. Yeah. And so they started doing that, and they became comfortable with doing it. Co yeah. Coast Guard knew them by name. Uh, and in fact, the Coast Guard uh, would tell them, please just call uh, and <laughs> register that you've had the spill and you've got it under control. Because before, the Coast Guard would respond, and when they'd respond, they'd see that we had adequately covered it, and so they trusted us to do that. Nice. And you have to be careful with things like that. Yeah. Because I ended up going to a symposium on the environment, and especially on oil spills, and every oil company was invited to it. We were going th around doing introductions, and I introduced myself uh, from Chevron, and a woman stood up and just started screaming at me, you are the worst oil company in the world. You folks have more spills than any other oil company. You guys have to improve your, <laughs> your methodology, you know. And uh, yeah, I was taken up totally aback by it, and I looked at her, I didn't know quite what to say. She said, do you realize that last year you had 25 spills? And Arco never had one. And Texaco never had one. And I looked at the crowd <coughs> of petroleum people. I said, is there anyone here who honestly believes that Arco did not have one spill last year or that Texaco did not have one spill? Right. I said, my defense, ma'am, I said, we report our spills. You know, no matter how insignificant they seem, we report them. Yeah. And I said, now you're chewing me out for doing the right thing. But, you know, you have to watch out because it does right. go all that way. People look at statistics and say, yeah. oh, my goodness, those are horrible people. Right. Well, and that actually is one of the things I thought about. I was like, something that's not tracked doesn't get measured or thought about. Yeah. But once you start tracking it, it starts creating a data point, And then it people does. just look at the top level like, oh, well, I saw this yeah. instead of seeing the, the fact that no one else is actually doing that. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, was, it, it worked in a lot of ways for me. I took an early retirement. A uh, golden handshake, as they used to call it, came out. They wanted to get rid of uh, older employees <laughs> who were making too much money, and uh, I qualified. Uh, but I was only 52 years old, and I didn't really feel secure not going to work. And I was well-known in the industry, and I had several offers to, hey, you're not working for Chevron anymore, come with us. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the, our jobbers... Uh, made me a, a great offer and they said come on board and I liked where they were at they're just up here in Cedro Woolley I was going to move to Camino Island short commute and so uh, I took them up on it and they said well now what would you like to do for us and I said I'd like to work your uh, warehouse I said I'd like to load uh, products into uh, farmers and loggers trucks and shoot the breeze with them <laughs> <laughs> 
oh, no, no, you can't do that. We need your expertise, you know. But uh, I worked for three weeks in uh, Mount Vernon, and uh, the head of sales was introducing me to customers driving around and uh, got a phone call. This was when the cell phones were about the size of a box of pretzels <laughs> <laughs> with about 10 batteries in them, and he was very <laughs> impressive with that. He got on it, and he says, oh, my God, and oh, no. And he said, finally hung up, and he says, oh, Tom, he said, I'm sorry, so we're going to have to go to Ballard. He said, uh, there's been an oil spill down there. And I said, what? Well, you know, whatever you have to do. So uh, we took off and got to Ballard and get out of the car, and he's just ranting. He says, oh, my gosh, he says, this is so awful. He says, Coast Guard uh, uh, official was walking across the parking lot as we pulled up, and uh, Joe waves at him, and he looks at me and says, Eisenberg. He said, are you in charge of this? <laughs> and Joe turned around and looked at me and says, no way. He said, you can do this stuff? I said, yeah, I can do this stuff. <laughs> and so I no longer worked at Cedro Willie. I was put in their Ballard office. And, okay. <laughs> but it was okay. It was a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah. All right. So you got to kind of pick up where you left off, continue I did with indeed. environmental. and Yeah. Nice. Very cool. So then when did you actually uh, finally retire then? I worked uh, with them. I told them if I'd work three years. I guaranteed them three years. And uh, if I was having fun, I'd continue. And at the end of three years, I wasn't having fun anymore because <laughs> they were putting me into sales, and I didn't, didn't like that department. And so <laughs> we parted ways on good terms. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So then you finally hit retirement age. You're, you're, you got the whole world ahead of you. Yes. Uh, what did you do then? I started getting ready to move to Camano Island. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we bought the property in 74 and uh, had used it as recreational property. Mm -hmm. And uh, the kids had just loved it. And by that time, the kids were all grown and uh, making lives of their own. And uh, we'd always talked about retiring at Camino Island. Okay. And you don't realize how fast time goes. As you get older, the clock gets wound up tighter and tighter. Yeah. All of a sudden, it was time to re start planning on going to Camano Island, mentioned it to my wife, and she says, no, <laughs> even though it had always been our plan. I said, why no? And she says, well, our grandkids live less than a mile away. She said, uh, I won't get to see my grandkids anymore. And I said, trust me, we get a place on Camano Island, you'll have the grandkids more than you want. <laughs> and uh, so to encourage her, I built a scale model of our house and with a roof that could be removed and uh, little pieces of wood the size of furniture. So she got, wanted to get her involved and excited about this and uh, just wasn't working too good. <laughs> so one day uh, in the spring of uh, 93, I said, or 94, excuse me, I told her, I said, just go up the property. We still went up there recreationally. I said, I want to stake the house out just so you can kind of see what it'll look like. So we're staking it out, and she's holding the stakes, and I'm running the string, and uh, we get through, and uh, she's standing there. She says, well, where am I now in the house? And I said, well, you're in the kitchen. And she said, what's wrong? Oh, no. No, no, no. I'm not going to have a kitchen that looks this way. <laughs> and, uh, I knew I was making headway. <laughs> I said, what do you need then? I said, see, you got to help me on this. So I had to flip the house completely over. <laughs> Which uh, worked. <laughs> <coughs> nice. So, so in 1994, 
uh, she hasn't stopped thanking me for making the move to Kamena. Nice. How did you guys learn about Kamena? Uh, we were on a hunt for property. I knew about Kamena from the 50s when it started to develop. Uh, okay. Some of my uh, mother's uh, sisters had bought property up here, and we'd go up and visit occasionally. Uh, some of the properties were like Tai Beach and things like that. Yeah. Uh, my dad always resisted buying up here, and uh, he had his good reasons. But uh, at any rate, yeah, you know, uh, my brother wanted a place out here. He'd been trapped on the East Coast all of his life after he graduated, uh, following his career and the money, and uh, never got back out on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. So he and his wife uh, started coming out here for their vacations. And I'd take him to Rosario and places like that. Oh, yeah. she absolutely, a New York girl, she fell in love with uh, <laughs> the Madrona trees in the salt water. Yeah. And she was rather wealthy, her dad was, and too. And she said, Tom, I'm going to make you a deal. She said, you and Vicky find us uh, acreage on the water. She said, we'll buy it. And she said, we'll keep it as a family retreat for everybody to use. Mm -hmm. Forever. So that was our goal. I couldn't pass it up. And uh, <laughs> we shopped all over the place, uh, up in the San Juans, Woodby Island, and even waterfront around Everett. And uh, just by a half a chance, we were looking at uh, advertised, looking for an advertised piece of property mm -hmm. and couldn't find it. And we ended up going down Barnum Road by accident. And uh, a buddy of mine was riding with us. And he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. He said, there's a for sale sign. And a little uh, piece of plywood uh, with hand-painted for sale on it <laughs> that was all mossy. <laughs> so I wrote down the phone number and made a phone call. An elderly woman answered. So what can I do for you? I said, well, I'm interested in your Camano Island property. Dead silence on the other end. She says, I have no Camano Island property. And I said, well, I found a for sale sign on a lot. And I said, uh, it had this phone number on it. Another pause. She says, oh, that stinking husband of mine. She said, <laughs> they'd been divorced for years or he died. I never got into the particulars. But at any rate, she's researched it and said, yes, I do have property. Yes, it is for sale. So uh, $4,000 for each two and a quarter acre lot. And we bought four of them. So we ended Wow. Up, yeah, I know. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really wonderful. And we really enjoyed it for a few years. And my uh, brother told me, he said, you know, everything you do here, he said, that sweat equity, he said, will make you a 50% owner of the property, even though we're never going to divide it. And I said, well, that's fine. And it turned out that uh, eternity uh, was about eight years, and he and his wife divorced. Okay. <laughs> so it was no longer a family retreat, and uh, we ended up with half of it. And so that's how we... Like I said, I'd rather be lucky than good. I ended up with a, a beautiful lot on Triangle Cove. So. Awesome. Very cool. So then upon moving here then, um, you you know, had this environmental background. Was that something you were looking at when you were out in Kameno? Was it something you were really high priority? Well, it, not, it was high priority. You know, we liked <laughs> the woods and uh, we liked na the natural setting. So it was uh, perfect that we were able to get that piece of property and. uh uh, it was just, you know, I've always had that, uh, I was raised with that uh, respect for nature. Um, my dad was the same way as my brother, even though he wasn't uh, college educated, but it was never there's a bird in the yard. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's a robin. It's a blue jay. I don't know what that is. Let's look it up. <laughs> it's a towhee, you know. And so when you have that uh, type of an upbringing, uh, plus we always had a variety of animals because of my brother. Yes. I can yeah. remember when I was about eight years old, he asked me, do you have any of your allowance saved? And I said, yeah, a little bit, you know. He says, well, I want a new pet. He said, an opossum. And so he had an opossum shipped all the way out from North Carolina, <laughs> I think it was, by train. I was part owner in it, and <laughs> we made a few mistakes. Opossums never make a good pet, I can guarantee you. <laughs> we had a porcupine for a pet. Oh, my goodness. A porcupine was a better pet than the possum was. Wow. We had all sorts of uh, squirrels and uh, ground squirrels and as he got older and more sophisticated, actually, uh, we kind of drifted apart, being four years apart. Uh, I was the kid. Yeah. And I was just 20 years old, and my brother was teaching in Berkeley and got a phone call, and my dad answers the phone. He said, oh, I see your brother. He wants to talk to you. Well, doesn't do that very often. got on the phone. I said, you know, what's going on? He says, well, he says, I'm going to uh, have to write my doctorate this year. And he said, uh, I am uh, going to go to Mexico and trap uh, exotic animals that have only been known by their skins at the Smithsonian Institute. And he said, I want to bring them back and study them. I thought, I'm just blown away. And I've got this job down at Muckleteal, you know, and uh, got off the phone. And my dad said, what's going on? And I told him, he says, well, you're going. And I said, well, I don't know. I said, I have to, you know, quit my job. <laughs> To start a summer and you're 20 years old, you, I want to go to the jungles of Mexico, you know. He says, when your brother calls, he says, you answer, you go. And so, uh, yeah, called him back, said, called my boss. He said, oh, you can't leave now. And I said, well, I am. <laughs> well, your job's waiting for you. So I said, that was, that was okay. And uh, away we went. It was uh, an experience, certainly, of a lifetime. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. So what type of, did you guys end up finding any animals? Or oh, what, yeah. What you guys uh, end up doing? He, he was, we both were wood savvy, and uh, he knew exactly what uh, type of conditions these animals like to live in. And uh, so the two species we were after, they were both rodents. And the one lived in the high desert, uh, and so we looked for them uh, shortly after we got across the border. And uh, the others were lived in the rainforests of the south, and so we ended up in the tip of the Yucatan at the end. Wow. Uh, we were given the key to the city of the town that we stayed in. They hadn't seen a white person in 30 years. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> so we were really pretty remote. We were just a few miles from the border with Guatemala. Okay, yeah. And, uh, by the time I got down there, I was uh, getting a little stir-crazy because all I had was my brother to talk to. I obeyed no espanol, you know. <laughs> and so uh, it was interesting in that town because uh, one guy approached us almost immediately. And uh, it, it, we'd gotten down there just months after the U-2 incident. If I don't know if you remember that. That's when the Russians knocked out one of our spy planes. Okay. Out of the, and we said, no, we didn't have spy planes and all this sort of stuff. And he thought we were a spy from the United States. <laughs> he was a communist himself. Okay. And a firm believer in communism. And <clears throat> as it turned out, he could speak pretty good English. And so uh, he was a very interesting person. I'd never met anybody quite like that. He yeah. was very suspicious of us, but uh, 
it became apparent that we were too stupid to be spies. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he even brought over, he had one of those big trans-oceanic radios. Yeah. And just out of kindness, he brought it over there and left it in our motel room for us so that I could listen to Texas uh, news and hear another uh, American's voice. <laughs> Pretty nice people. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. Did you guys end up finding both rodents then? Yep. Got them all. Uh, had a disaster with the, the first animals we caught. Uh, we were traveling in the daytime, and we never stopped to think that they're a nocturnal animal, and even though they live in the desert, uh, they, they can't take the heat. And we had it in uh-huh. the back of a Nash Rambler. <laughs> uh, and we had towels over them to keep shade on them, but we lost uh, the first cats that we had. Okay. My brother was out there tearing his hair. He, he was a very emotional guy. Very emotional guy. <laughs> and I f- kind of found out why he took me, because he, we were quite opposite in dispositions. Yeah. Yet we got along great. Yeah. But he, he'd go a bit crazy, uh, because we started driving at night then, to, when it was cool, and yeah. we'd uh, uh, stay in a hotel or motel when it was uh, heat of the day. And uh, he said, well, here, here's the deal, Tommy. He says, uh, you drive first. And he said, then I'll take over. I said, okay. And so I'd drive until, you know, like uh, midnight. You start getting a little tired. Yeah. Tell him, okay, John, you can take over, you know. Well, yeah, okay. You know. Get over there. And, and he, then he couldn't stay awake. Talk to me. You've got to talk to me. I'm going to talk to you. I might just <laughs> well drive, right? <laughs> he was a great guy, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we did have a good time. We learned each other, that's for sure. Yeah. And we were very, very close from that time on. So. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. So we did bring back both species. Doctorate was a great success, and uh, yeah, the rest is history. He became a an inst- he became full professor, or associate professor, started out with a UBC. <clears throat> and within two years, I liked it when he was up in Canada, <laughs> Within two years, he got an offer uh, from the University of Maryland, and he went back there, and then uh, his next offer was from the Smithsonian Institute okay. and the National Zoo. And wow. uh, so he uh, did research work for them. And stuff. Yeah. Nice. Quite a career. Very cool. Yeah. That's fact, great. He and his wife were instrumental in bringing the pandas uh, to the United States. Okay. Yeah. In fact, we got to go for the unveiling uh, I've, like I said, I've always been lucky. I've got absolutely a stunning wife. <laughs> we were invited to, to go see the unveiling of the pandas at the yep. zoo, and it was going to be at, uh, at 10 o'clock. And they had the media all there, TV, everything. But my wife is not leaving the house until she looks just right. And so it took a little longer than we thought <laughs> getting on the road. And it was raining, and of course we don't don't go in the main entrance. We go in the the work access, and we go down a hall, and we get to see Ling Ling and Ding Ding or whatever their names were, before they were released in their private pen, and then uh, they released them to the public after that. Nobody knows what what the real delay was, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the reporters are all stalling out there. They wanted it live. And <laughs> wow, very cool. That's awesome. So then, how did you end up getting involved with the Friends of Kameno Island and Parks? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the first couple of years I was on the island, you're, you're getting settled. Brand new house, there was uh, landscaping, garden to put in, uh, a lot of detail work. Uh, but once that was done, I've always been kind of task-orientated. Uh, I happened to see in the uh, Stan Cam news that 
Center for Wooden Boats was taking, uh, going to have a boathouse at Cava Beach. And so I've always loved boats. I've built boats, and uh, just uh, thought, that would be fun. I'm going to go over there. So I went over and talked to the folks, and uh, I started as a volunteer with the Center for Wooden Boats. Uh, shortly thereafter, within a year, I was. Uh, we used to have a street fair in May in Sandwood. Uh -huh. uh, it died, but it was a lot of fun. And uh, Vicki and I, my wife, were walking the street, booth to booth, and Two ladies were at a booth, and they saw me, and they came out and said, you're just a guy we're looking for. I said, really? I said, what did I do now? And they said, well, we need somebody who'd like to work in the state parks. And so I thought, that sounds like fun. So I took on a volunteer position with them, too. Okay. And uh, they didn't conflict with each other, and yeah, it worked out well. Nice. Yeah. And was that with FOSIP? Yeah. It okay. was Friends of Command Wild Parks. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. So then, um, what did you start out? What was your role when you got started? Well, uh, with the Center for Wooden Boats, uh, they were just trying to get volunteers. And so uh, I probably kind of took the lead in getting volunteers. Yep. And uh, they, they really did it the right way. They uh, uh, put in a, uh, the newspaper. We're going to have a meeting at the multiple use building. Mm-hmm. And anybody interested in joining the, the volunteer group, and they listed categories that you can sit down and talk about and go from one to one or to the next. And if, if you found one you liked, that was it. So we had a, a grounds and a buildings committee. We had a boat committee. We had a historical committee. Mm -hmm. And uh, most people wanted to be on the boat committee because okay. that's the fun thing. Yeah. At least they thought. <laughs> and, and even before the park opened, uh, we had... We probably had more volunteers than they've ever had. Yeah. We, we had about 25 to 30 volunteers. Okay. And we were able to stabilize the boathouse, uh, repair the roof on it, uh, inventory the boats. Uh, we took the lines off of every type of boat that's in there in case they'd like to reproduce one and uh, use it and that sort of stuff. So, And we built the uh, fleet of uh, rowboats and sailboats. Okay. Uh, in that length of time, too, because it took from uh, 1994 when the park was acquired until 2008 for the park to open. So we had wow. plenty okay. of time. Yes. 2008. And just for our listeners, this is talking about the first, this is Camino Island State Park. No. No. No, this is Cama Beach. This is Cama Beach. Okay. Right. Cama Beach was acquired. Uh, French Camino Island Parks formed as Friends of Cama to help lobby and transfer that uh, state park instead of private ownership. Okay. And by the time I joined Friends of Camino Island Parks, they'd already changed their name. The park had been acquired, and they changed it to Friends of Camino Island Parks. Okay. And so Tuesdays I'd work with them, and weekends I'd work at the <coughs> Center for Wooden Boats. Okay. Nice. And, until they opened. Okay. Yeah. So um, for... Um, for FOSIP or Friends of Camino Islands uh, Parks, parks mm -hmm. um, what are considered underneath of their umbrella? The properties? Yeah. Every piece of public property on Camino Island. Okay. <laughs> so we uh, help out at the uh, Camino Center. We used to help out uh, here at the uh, Chamber of Commerce's property. Yeah. And of course, then we also uh, help out at all county properties. So we have. Uh, total of, well, when we formed to get Cama Beach, there was less than 300 acres of public property. 
and I'm happy to say now part of our mission is acquisition. We've got 1,600 acres of property. So wow. We're doing okay. something right. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So then how did you um, become the president of FOSIP? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never make that mistake. No, honestly, if anybody's ever interested, uh, the position will be open next June. Uh, this is my last uh, really? term. Yeah. Wow. Uh, 12 years is enough. And, yeah. Uh, and it's not because I don't enjoy it. It's just because uh, it's getting to be too much for me. Yeah. You slow down, uh, and your time becomes more precious. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm serving this one out. Uh, it's a wonderful organization. Uh, it's got the absolute uh, best board and the best group of volunteers you could ever ask for. I've got uh, between 20 and 30 volunteers that show up every Tuesday, and uh, it keeps me jumping just finding good meaningful work for them <laughs> but the, on the other hand uh, just like today uh, we had a special project in fact just came from a special work party and uh, you know all I have to do is make a couple of phone calls and I've got people yeah I'll do that sure let's do it you know so we're working on uh, a project now at Barnum Point okay it's been in the works for over two and a half years yeah uh, submitted the plan, and uh, it takes a very, 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 very long time for something to go through all the processes uh -huh. of the county. Yep. And so uh, we just got uh, informed that we can do it now, about two weeks ago, and so nice. that's our next one. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for for twelve years. That's that's a <laughs> long time to be serving in a, a volunteer position. All right. Well, um, let's put it this way: be... I've been in the parks longer than any person in the parks. Wow. So yeah, I started with the close-ups in '95. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Well, very cool. That's awesome. Really appreciate all the work that you've done to to really continue to uh, for Camino to be what people see it as. Yeah. Well, been my pleasure. It's yeah. a wonderful place to work and good people. Yeah. Highland's got a small town atmosphere to it, even mm -hmm. to this day. And I think people appreciate that. You know, yeah. People are willing to help out. Yeah, that's really cool. So for you then, um, what? maybe this is a good advertisement, what does a typical day for, as a president look like for you then? Well, trying to avoid doing FOSUP's work. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to work in a day of crabbing or a day of fishing. Uh huh. No, but uh, you know, typically uh, checking emails and uh, and responding to those that uh, require it, and uh, that really isn't such a, a chore. But uh, making sure that the job is lined up and ready to go, materials are there, uh, as somebody is there to that knows how to do the job and can supervise it. Uh, those are, do keep you jumping and. Uh, uh, making sure that uh, the materials are all purchased and, and ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, beside the uh, normal work parties, uh, I put in a, right around between 30 and 50 hours uh, a month. Okay. So it's not that bad. Yeah. It's still, still a decent amount, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you have friends or family visiting this area uh, that aren't normally from here, what, what do you kind of... What's kind of your tour that you give them? You know, uh, I'll take them where they want to go. Yeah. Yeah. I give them multiple choice, uh, <laughs> depending on their age, physical abilities, and things like that. But, uh, yeah, 
sometimes it's just to drive around the island to let them see what it's uh, like and uh, the nature of it and point out where they're at. Yeah. That's Woodby Island. This is Commando <coughs> Island. That's the big island. We're the good island, you know. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, what are some interesting Commando Island park facts? What's that? What are some interesting Camano Island park facts? Park facts? Yes, that's a hard thing oh, to say. Oh, no, uh, that's quite all right. <laughs> no, you know, uh, it's, it would be hard to, uh, to single out anything. Each park is unique. And that's why uh, you're never going to get tired of going to the parks. You know, everything from terrain, uh, vegetation, uh, Water, fresh water, salt water, that's just the beauty of our parks. We've got it all. Uh-huh. And uh, good trails made by good people. Yeah. <laughs> and maintained by good people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, usually I like to take them to Barnum because it's close to us and uh, we can, uh, we used to be able to walk there. Uh, yeah. Now we, we do drive around the parking lot, but uh, yeah. Nice. It's my favorite. Yeah. What are some of the wildlife um, that you frequently encounter out there you know uh you just have to be very observant to see what's going on yeah and a lot of people uh see the obvious and miss the the details uh you know the easiest thing to see is our deer yeah because we have a lot of deer and by the way we have a white one again this year okay at our place well and it, it's also seen on barnum too mm-hmm. it's not an albino it is truly a white deer it has a dark nose it's got dark eyes and really uh, yeah this is the second one in the last three years the first one uh, didn't survive very long mm. for whatever reasons there's a high mortality rate with fawns but this one is uh, now getting good-sized and seems pretty well uh, able to take care of itself. Uh, coyotes, you'll see those often, and they're pretty easily identified. Uh, the small stuff is uh, what goes unobserved a lot of times. Uh, here recently, I've had, uh, uh, I see weasels. Okay. They'll dart across a road. Uh, <laughs> most people see it and think it's a funny-looking squirrel, but uh, it's not. And... Uh, Right now, we had a national geographic moment in our backyard in uh, respect of, we have, of course, our native little red squirrels. And uh, my wife yelled at me, I was on the computer, and she said, get out here and see what's going on. And I went out to the kitchen and uh, looked out the window, and she said, there's a bird up there, and there's squirrels up there, and they seem to be harassing each other. And I thought, well, a crow maybe, you know, and I'm looking and I see a bird fly out of the backside of the tree. I can't tell what it is, but uh, we have band-tailed pigeons right now, about the size of a pigeon. I thought, well, it's a band-tailed pigeon, but that doesn't make any sense. And she says, no, there's two of them. And all of a sudden, uh, the bird hops around to the exposed side of the tree, and it was a cooper's hawk. Okay. And this is a life-and-death situation with a squirrel. It's, got, it's above the squirrel, and the squirrel is below a naked trunk. <laughs> with grass around it. So if he drops down to the ground, he's in big trouble, and he knows it. And <laughs> he's going around on one side, and the uh, hawk is following him uh, as best it can. And uh, my wife, she couldn't take it. She says, I'm going to break this up. And I said, honey, I said, it's all part of nature. You know, 
we got plenty of squirrels. Yeah, but <laughs> this could be one I like, you know. So she shooed it away, and it still wouldn't leave. Yeah. Distracted it enough to where the squirrel was able to make an escape. But, uh, <laughs> but still, you know, that's part of living on the island. It's, you see these uh, natural situations occur. Yeah. Yeah. We also saw a young coyote the other day, too, go through the yard. So. Okay. Yeah, it's that time of year. The youngsters are getting pushed out and around. And, yep. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. Of course, diverse birding. A person is all interested in birding. You know, yeah. Uh, both Iversons and uh, Barnum Point have a very extensive bird lists of mm-hmm. uh, serious birders. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so uh, another question that kind of goes along more with the environmental side. Um, over the course of time that you've lived here, have you noticed big changes in like the climate as far as weather and how winters and summers and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and the, the, the biggest things I've noticed are uh, even though our rainfall average is roughly the same, yeah, it's when we get it and how we get it. Okay. Uh, we used to be known for our drizzle. Yeah. You know, you might go a week or sometimes in the Seattle area they where they were so uh, conscious of the weather. I remember sometimes there would be 30 days with a sprinkle every day. Well, that light, uh, slow uh, uh, application of the waters uh, is what we need because that gives it a chance to sink in and it doesn't run off. Mm -hmm. Well, now we get our uh, rains in episodes, like a tropical rainfall. Yeah. Very intense, and as a result, a lot of it washes away. It goes down storm drains, uh, out into the bay, and doesn't go down through the soil. And as a result, our trees are uh, are paying the price for it. Yeah. So uh, even though people look at the statistics and say, well, the rainfall is, you know, it hasn't changed that much, it has changed. And uh, the other thing is, the uh, same thing's true of our wind. We're having more episodes of strong winds. Yeah. And as a result, the trees are getting uh, knocked over. They're distressed to begin with. And I notice it because I'm out there clearing trails of debris and right. it's changed dramatically in the last 30 years, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, today, when a big fir tree comes over, in the past, there'd be a huge root ball that would come up 12 feet or higher. Wow. And okay. now when they come over, a lot of times there's no root ball at all. So the roots are, are actually, uh, there's have what we call root rot that's going through the conifers and uh, roots oh. are getting decayed and prematurely and over the tree goes. Okay. Yeah. Wow. You asked for it, I gave it to you. Yeah. <laughs> so in that then, um, what's, as far as what you're seeing, is that kind of a natural, because I know climate does change a little bit up and down over time. Absolutely. Is it, is it a natural that you think you're seeing or is it the decrease in tree population is it global warm it what what are the things that you kind of attribute to the the changes well because of the rapid change you know over my lifetime it's been gradual and then here in the last uh 15 years it's like it's accelerating yeah the change is accelerating yeah and uh you see the statistics scientific uh, stats, you know, our oceans are warming. That, that's not good, you yeah. know. And uh, oxygen is being depleted in the the water. Uh, the other thing is our demand for water. You know, uh, it's, it's just 
we are always trying to satisfy ourselves, which is just human nature, and that's why we get in trouble. Yeah. You know, the first time I went down to Arizona after I retired, that would have been in the 90s, early 90s, uh, I couldn't believe those deserts around Yuma, Arizona. Mm -hmm. They'd flood, uh, irrigate them to grow uh, iceberg lettuce. And I thought, my God, that's a horrible waste of water for a food that you could starve to death eating on, (laughs) just for the luxury of a little crunch in your salad. Uh, and now they're paying the price for it down there. You know, water is really becoming uh, dear. And we've always wondered what happened to civilizations. What happened to the Mayans? What happened to the Egyptians? Well, I think we're kind of seeing it. You know, yeah. you start building big cities, you get high densities of population, and with that, problems come up. Um, so we like to end every podcast with some rapid-fire questions. Okay. Uh, so the first one is, what purchase of $100 or less have you enjoyed the most in the last three months? $100 or less? Okay. I'm not much for buying things. Uh-huh. I got a, a heavy Lee sh- shirt jacket. Nice. From Costco. Well, I like it. <laughs> Perfect. That's a great option. It's just dressy enough to be able to go places and yet it's warm and functional. Yes. Yes. And it was definitely less than a hundred bucks. Right. <laughs> All right. Who is the most influential person outside of your family in your life? Oh gosh. I've been influenced by everybody I met. Mm-hmm. I found out a long time ago that whether you like them or not, you have to study why you like them or why you don't like them. And I found out growing up in the, in the workforce that when you ended up in a bad situation, grr, you know, you really hated that person. But if you sat back and said, what role did I play in this? Mm-hmm. You were part of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't 100% them. Right. And then, <laughs> you know, just learning from these little instances teaches you how to navigate life better. Yeah. With less conflicts and uh, less problems. And after a while, you can see the people that have problems and are a little uh, easily inflamed. And mm-hmm. uh, you can either, you know, avoid them or get another job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, yeah it, it, there's been a few people. I'll, I'll tell you somebody who influenced me. Yeah. Your dad. Yeah. He was or is genuinely a nice person. And he came up here with a vision. Yep. And he worked hard at it, and he put <laughs> all the pieces of that puzzle together, except he was about 10 years too soon. Uh-huh. <laughs> Our population just wasn't ready for it. But what a beautiful idea to have a nice coffee shop where people could sit down, have a cup of coffee, have a little uh, verbal exchange, and, uh, and make life a little better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, he was a fine guy. Very cool. Yeah. All right. This is a fill-in-the-blank question. I know this is weird, but I've always wanted to blank. Okay. This is too simple, I know. But I told you that uh, I never knew what I wanted to be. Yeah. Yet my brother always did. And so they expected me to have the answer. And uh, I did have the answer. Yeah. Even at the age 18. What do you want to be, Tom? I want to grow up to be a happy old man. <laughs> Awesome. Have you been successful in that then? Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> That's thanks to my wonderful wife, too. Very cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, who is an interesting or fascinating person that I should interview next? Ooh, we're full of uh, very interesting people. Mm-hmm. 
about Jeff Wheeler? Or have you done Jeff? No, I haven't. I haven't. I've heard a lot about him, and I've heard a lot of uh, different things, and, and he's <laughs> been suggested before, so I'll definitely put him on, yeah, uh, on a sure priority. Make sure allow yourself at least as much time as you did with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jeff's a, a great guy, and he'd be a good person to interview. Uh, you know, my vice president, Jay McFetters, would be uh, almost any of my volunteers. They're just uh, a fascinating bunch of people who are willing to give their time uh, to make the island a better place. All right, perfect. All right, and lastly, what piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Well, it just goes on and on, doesn't it? <laughs> I guess I'd give him the advice uh, that I gave my 20-year-old son, and uh, that was to do your best always. Mm. If you're on a job that you don't like, quit it. If you're on a job that's difficult, see it through. And you'll gain experience and you'll gain wisdom by doing it. Yeah. It's not easy to do. No. It's, it's very simple sounding, but very difficult in practice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Tom. No, it's my pleasure, Brandon. I appreciate you thinking of me. Yeah. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Tom Eisenberg for joining me on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to get your tickets to Taste of the Marketplace uh, this coming Friday, right? Next coming Friday, not this coming Friday. Next Friday, November 3rd at 5 p.m. Be sure to get your tickets. All proceeds go to the Stanwood Camino Food Bank. Um, so it's a great way to donate to them and get some food and hang out with some people. Lots of exciting stuff. I will have the uh, ticket link down below in the show notes. Um, but either words, uh, thank you guys for listening. And I will see you on the next